Morning everybody. It's been my habit for many years to read the Bible every day and I know there's other people here who do too. Uh, I, I can't recommend it highly enough. Um, one of the lecturers that I studied with at Ridley College said you need to marinate your brain in scripture. Uh, now I promise your friends that your brain will be marinated in something. Uh, it'll either be the scripture or the world, right? And so the question is which is more likely to get you to heaven or, or help you get there without any unnecessary hindrances so marinate your brain in something scripture i think is the best thing to marinate your brain in. but i was reading my bible one morning before i went to work and uh, these words came out they stood out as though they had a, a big highlighter pen or a neon light behind them. So matthew 24 uh, jesus is answering the question we've been thinking about over the last few weeks about uh, the signs of his coming and uh, uh, and when will these things be which is the questions the disciples asked and um, at verse 9 Jesus predicts he says they will deliver you up to tribulation he's speaking to the disciples so he's telling them what they're in for and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my sake and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So the gospel will be proclaimed, and it will be proclaimed to all nations, because this is the promise and the mandate of the Lord of the church and the Lord of the universe. Uh, the, the New Testament declares that Jesus is the one through whom all things were made and for whom all things were made and he's the one who holds all things together. That's a pretty comprehensive picture of the, the uh, sovereignty of Jesus, isn't it? Do we believe that? Or do we only believe it on Sundays? Right? Jesus is sovereign. He's sovereign over elections. Um, there is no power in heaven or on earth that can withstand the sovereignty and authority of the Lord Jesus because he's been raised from the dead. Now, Christianity is not an escapist faith. It's a realistic one. And so Jesus says to his disciples, this is the world you're going out into. It's a world where you will be subjected to trials, tribulations. Some of you will be put to death. You'll be hated. But he says many will fall away and betray one another. So he's warning them and hate one another. And many false prophets will rise and lead many astray. But this is the verse that stood out to me that day because lawlessness will be increased. Now, I was reading it in the NIV at the time and the NIV, I think, translates those words because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. So that's the world, isn't it? So what are you doing to keep your love warm? Well, actually, good uh, congratulations, you're here today. That's part of it, Right? Because you won't hear words like this elsewhere uh, and you won't hear it with a group like this who are wanting to help you stay on track. But the words of Jesus, because of the increase of wickedness, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Right? Do we want to be among those who fall away because our hearts have grown cold? Do we? Of course not. So what are we going to do about it? We're going to keep coming to church, we're going to keep reading the Bible, we're going to keep praying... And we're not going to grow dismayed at the state of the world because the world gives us opportunities, but we're not going to let the world 
affect the way we regard Jesus. Right Now I hear some Christians who are giving in to dismay, they look at the shape of the world and they say, oh, and they get all frightened. No, the world's always been frightening for Christians because the world has always been opposed to the gospel of Christ. Now we're going to see that in a, in a moment. Uh, turn to Second Timothy chapter 4, which is where we'll be reading from in a minute, but just to show you why I've chosen this passage to speak today. Next week we're going to start a series that Nathan's cooked up on the book of Ruth from the Old Testament and we're going to look at how Ruth prefigures Christmas, right? Um, but today we're going to finish up looking at the, uh, the teaching that Jesus has and the, the, the apostles apply about the return of the Lord Jesus, right? So I've had quite a few people over the last several years say to me, oh, Steve, we don't hear about the Lord's return like we used to. And, uh, and I've said a couple of times, well, actually, I, I talk about it quite a lot, but perhaps not in the way that you used to, because I don't believe in putting out timelines and charts and saying this is when it's likely to happen, because the New Testament discourages that. In fact, it warns against it. What I believe in teaching is trying to teach about the Lord's return in the way that Jesus taught about it and in the way that the apostles taught about it, right? And you can't get better than that. So this series that we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks I've, I've called Waiting for Jesus' Return from Matthew 24 and 25. There's a few things that Jesus says don't do. There's a few things that Jesus says do do. So amongst other things he says, don't be led astray, right? Now he says that there's a risk of being led astray and we're going to think about this in a moment from Second Timothy. He says don't be alarmed in chapter 24 verse 6. So in other words, when you look around... Don't be frightened. Don't be alarmed. Don't let that deter you. He says, do endure to the end. We're going to see that picked up in the reading from Second Timothy as well. Uh, there are no prizes in the Olympic Games for people who start but don't finish. Paul, uh, Jesus is using the image of an athlete. Paul is using the image of an athlete in a moment. Do endure to the end. Stay awake, says Jesus. Be like a sentry whose duty it is to guard something precious. Stay awake. Don't desert your watch. But the other thing that Jesus says is to be ready. Right now, be ready. Um, we're told to be ready for the fire season. If you live in the bush, you need to have a fire-ready kit so that you'll be ready for all things. So there's some do's and don'ts that Jesus says. They're pretty basic, right? They're things that we need to keep in mind. Now, Jesus' return, he says, will be sudden. It'll be as swift as a bolt of lightning. He says it will be as unexpected as the arrival of a burglar. And, he says, it will be delayed. It'll be delayed like someone who goes away for a long time on business and doesn't actually tell the servants that he's left at home when he'll be back. So Jesus' return will be sudden, unexpected and delayed. And so to help his disciples and to help us understand it, he told two stories. He said that, uh, the ret that his return and, and the time in between, the time of patience and waiting for his followers, uh, will be like a master who goes away and entrusts a part of his wealth to his servants to invest and to use wisely. That's where we get the idea of talents from. A talent was a unit of weight used to weigh out money. Uh, he entrusts part of his wealth so what's he entrusted you with? How are you using it for his kingdom's sake while you wait for him to return? We all of us want to hear the commendation of our Lord, our Master and our Judge when he returns, well done, good and faithful servant. 
that will be music to your ears when you hear that, right? But there'll be some who won't hear it, right? So we need to be among those who are ready, awake, watchful. We need to be among those who use what we've been trusted with from the wealth of the master wisely and well. But he tells another story about the separation of the sheep and the goats. And as I pointed out um, when I preached on this, uh, sheep and goats in the ancient world were almost indistinguishable from each other. I went to Africa and uh, I visited some missionaries over there and he showed me a man herding a flock of sheep and goats. I couldn't tell them apart. Right. So the day when Jesus returns is going to surprise some people. And there'll be a separation because he can tell the difference between sheep and goats because he's the good shepherd. But Jesus says the basis of that separation will be what you did with your talents to serve his brothers, the family members of Christ. Right? That's what he says it'll be. As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Now, you could turn that on its head and uh, people who inflict grief on the brothers of Jesus have a a dangerous future ahead of them right so we need to be looking for opportunities to serve each other now jesus says in matthew 24 there'll be wars and rumors of wars there'll be famines there'll be earthquakes and because of those sorts of events he actually says these are but the beginnings of birth pangs they're but in other words these are the sorts of things that you can expect to find throughout the period of time between jesus return to heaven and his return to earth get used to wars famines and earthquakes Um, do something sensible about them of course but they're just the conditions of life as are marrying and giving in marriage eating and drinking from a little bit later on but sometimes you'll find people who think that it's their job on the basis of what looks like an increase of wars or famines or earthquakes to say well it must be soon Um, So I couldn't tell you how many times I've heard people say, I'm old enough to remember before the uh, turn of the 21st century, but I heard preachers confidently say, I don't think we're going to make it to the year 2000. Well, I have a book that thick at home of failed predictions of Jesus' return. I should have brought it. I I will bring it one day. Um, but, But this bloke has gone through the history of the church And I'm sure there's many he's left out, but it's that thick of all these failed predictions. So the idea of Jesus' teaching is not so that we can set the date. When the topic of the return of Jesus is used in the New Testament, following the example of Jesus himself, when the apostles like Peter and James and and Paul use it, it's never to increase our speculation wondering when it might be. It's always used to prepare us. Not speculation, but preparation. That's why Jesus left his teaching about his return. So Peter asks, in view of all these things, what manner of people should you be? Since Jesus is returning, what kind of lives should we be living? Because it will be sudden, it will be unexpected, we don't know how long the delay will be. We must be ready. So what sort of lives will we be living when he appears? That's the challenge for believers. Not working out when, but what we're to be doing while we wait. Because we can't work out when. So we're going to turn to Second Timothy 4, and we're going to look at how Paul talks about these things. But before we do, we'll pray. 
Uh, loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that part of your trust to us is your word. So we pray that you would help us to be found uh, faithful servants who are good stewards of the gift of your word. Uh, we pray that you would help us to, to read it, to cherish it, to, to engage seriously and deeply with it so that we understand what it's saying to us, so that we might live well while we wait for the Lord Jesus to return from heaven. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, let's look at 2 Timothy 4. Uh, starting at verse 1 and so and these are Paul's last written words by the way 2nd Timothy is Paul's last letter Um, so famous last words Uh, he's got a lot on his mind as he writes to young Timothy left in charge of the church at Ephesus Uh, and so Paul writes I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom preach the word Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfil your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly strongly opposed our message. At my first defence, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and he strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory for ever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesephorus. Erastus remained at Corinth and I left Trophimus who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Now, first thing, did you notice how many parallels there are between what Paul's writing to Timothy and what Jesus said to his disciples? Did you notice that Paul's been strongly opposed? Did you notice that he's warning Timothy about the increase of false teaching that many will find popular? 
Um, Paul is describing what Jesus predicted. He's saying it's happened to me and he's saying, Timothy, it will happen to you. Right? So, very realistic, the assessment of these things. So living well for wa- while waiting for Jesus. I only want to talk about the first 11 verses, uh, but there's four case studies here about what it looks like for New Testament believers to live well while waiting for Jesus. The first of them is Timothy. Now, Timothy is an evangelist. He's a bearer of the message of the gospel. And these are the first five verses. Now, Paul gives him a charge, which means he's giving him a solemn, stern command. This is not something he can be half-hearted about. Paul charges him. That's a strong word. And he charges him in light of a number of things, in light of the presence of God. Uh, In Psalm 14, it says, The fool says in his heart there is no God. Uh, I think Christians who sin deliberately are like temporary atheists. We think, oh, God won't notice. Paul says to Timothy, in the presence of God, you know, we live in the presence of God, don't we? Is there a single thing that we do or say, I think that God doesn't know? Paul says to Timothy, I charge you, knowing that God is watching. He also includes Jesus. Because Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. Jesus is God. Jesus is God the Son. He's returned to heaven where he's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, where he's governing the universe. And so Paul charges Timothy in the presence of God and against the fact that Jesus is going to return. Look what he says there. He says, um, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom... Paul is referring to the second coming of Jesus as a statement that Timothy knows how serious his pastoral ministry is because Jesus is definitely coming back, so therefore discharge your duties in a way that makes it look like you care about that. The fact is Jesus is returning. He will come. We don't know when, but he will come. It's as integral a part of the gospel message as the death, burial and resurrection of our Lord. He will return. We don't know when, but he will return. And we need to live in light of it. The end puts the present in perspective. So we, each of us, you may not be preachers of the word, but you're all expected to be faithful handlers of the word. We need to live in light of the end. We need to live every day as though it may be our last. That's what Paul's saying. Now, you may not be the pastor of a church like Timothy, but there's things here that you can apply to yourself. The end puts everything in perspective because Jesus is returning not just as king, but as judge. So Timothy's told to preach the word. Um, Preach means to proclaim, it means to announce. He's told to preach the scriptures because the scriptures reveal Jesus as the king and the judge. Uh, So in other words, don't leave anything out. Don't shirk the tough bits. Remind people that there is a day of judgment coming. And we all live in light of it. Now, Paul says to Timothy, be ready, which means to be urgent, to be on standby, just like the uh, the fighter crews were in the Second World War. Uh, If you were living in England at the time of the Second World War with the, uh, the invading German air force only just across the English Channel, if you thought it was your duty to spare England the, the, the advance of these crews, you'd be ready and you'd have to be waiting round the clock to jump in your, your Spitfire plane and get up into the air and, and do battle. That's the kind of urgency that te- uh, Paul's telling Timothy he needs to be ready with. 
He says, be ready in season and out of season, whether the weather's nice or nasty. He says, whether it's convenient or inconvenient, be ready. Now, a lot of Christians judge opportunity as being God's will. It's a good day, therefore I will. Uh, Paul says to Timothy, and I think by extension he says to us, be ready whether you're ready or not. Whether times are good or evil, just get on with it. Uh, there's no good or bad time to, to spread the gospel. It's all good. Be ready in season and out of season. He says to Timothy that amongst his duties will be to reprove, right? Which means that he needs to register strong disapproval. There will be people whose lives do not commend the gospel. There'll be people whose lives stray from the gospel. Paul says to Timothy, in your ministry of the word, you will need to reprove. Now, if that's the instruction to Christian pastors, what should be the response of obedient Christian people, should ever that be the case? A man could get himself sacked for preaching these words. Reprove. Who wants to be reproved? Who needs to be reproved? I do. You do. Don't you? Or have you got it all together? A very famous former president of the United States was once asked, was he a Christian? He replied he was. He said, why did Jesus, the, the questioner asked, why did Jesus die? I think he mumbled something about being forgiven. He says, have you ever done anything that you needed to be forgiven for? And that former president of the United States couldn't think of one thing. That's foolishness. Right? The task of the faithful pastor is occasionally to reprove and to rebuke. Now, I remember being a school teacher and that was, it was not my favourite part of the task, but it was a necessary part of the task. There were times when I had to rebuke people. And the point of the rebuke is to prevent what shouldn't be happening from happening. Part of my duty as a school teacher was to make sure that the conditions that made possible learning, like learning is impossible in a chaotic environment. And I had a duty to the students who wanted to learn to rebuke those who wanted to get in the way of that. Right? Rebuke. Preventing or ending a negative action. That's the task of a faithful preacher. Exhortation. Exhortation means that strong word of encouragement that says you've got to do this even though it's difficult. Exhortation. Uh, The picture I've got up there is the famous Hawthorne football coach, John Kennedy, who uh, once addressed his team at half-time and apparently he said to them, because they were playing badly, he says, just do something. Because they weren't doing anything. Just do something, he said. Right? Apparently he was a person who left quite a stamp on the players that played under him. He was known for terrifying exhortations. But the word is to build us up. And it won't always be appealing to us, but it's necessary for us. And Paul says to Timothy, you're going to need to do all this with complete patience and teaching. Uh, The gospel life... The Christian life is a a marathon, not a sprint. Patience is required. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, The work that God wants to do in you won't be accomplished quickly. It it takes place gradually. I I think just learning the Bible is a bit like watching stalactites form. Have you ever watched a stalactite form on the the, the, the roof of a cave? I can never remember a stalactite. So correct me later over... Tell me over a cup of tea... But how do, they, how do they accumulate? Drip by drip by drip. Right? How do you learn the Bible? Bit 
by bit by bit. You'll forget most of what I say today, but hopefully just a little bit will stay with you, right? And then you add that to the next time. And over years of patient reading and listening and praying, your knowledge of the scriptures will advance. It won't happen quickly. You can't download it all, but patiently through endurance it will get there so timothy needs to teach teach patiently and we need to be patient listeners as well and the reason that he needs to be patient as he proclaims the message of the lord jesus is paul says the time is coming just as jesus said it would jesus said you will need to watch out for we wolves in sheep's clothing uh, paul says to timothy the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but having itchy ears they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now, why would that be? Because people like preaching that enforces their own passion. People prefer preaching that suits them. So Ray Patchett, who many of us know, uh, used to be the pastor of this church uh, and he, he preaches down here still from time to time. He was preaching at a an inter-church event uh, not that long ago and a fella came up to him there was four talks that he gave and a fella came up he says I've driven four hours to be here today and all you're talking about is sin I'm sure that wasn't all he was talking about but uh, he must have mentioned it and this fella rebuked him for talking about sin and, Paul, and, and Ray said well I'm, I'm telling you what's in the passage we're reading he says well turn the page People don't like hearing about the things that they need to hear. Uh, The time's coming, Paul says, when people won't endure sound teaching. They'll have itching ears for for myths and other things. Teach us to suit their own passions. Well, here's the question. Whose passions should we be serving? Right? Because your passions will take you to hell. My passions would have taken me to hell. Right? We need to... uh, we need to start to form our passions after the heart of God. And so if you prefer teaching because it suits you, it's probably not right. Teaching is going to knock the rough edges off us, and we all have some. But realistic gospel ministry, says Paul, is understanding this, that the truth won't be popular. Uh, Jesus himself said that. He said, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Uh, I don't want to be found to be in disagreement with Jesus. I need to accept his diagnosis. He says the, the way to destruction is wide, the way to life is few. It will be hard. That's why so few people try it. Right? That's just gospel realism. But, says Paul, as for you, he says, that's not the way it's going to be for you. And so he says, always be sober-minded, right? Now, to be sober-minded means to be clear about the situations you're facing. Um, Now, I think there's a good perspective on this from cricket. Wonderful game, cricket. You can learn a lot of life lessons from cricket. In cricket, there are times when you have to let the ball go through to the keeper, right? Either it's not worth playing or it's just too difficult. And you can't do anything else with it, but just let it go through. So being sober-minded means working out, is this something I just need to let go through to Jesus? There's times when you have to defend because you can't attack. You've just got to keep the ball from hitting your stumps or hitting you. 
But there are times when you need to go on the attack, right? That's being sober-minded, working it out. I remember a very good Australian cricket batsman a few years ago who was famous for having rushes of blood, the commentator used to say. So he'd make a very elegant 30 and think he was doing well and then he'd come down the track and try to belt the bloke out of the ground and he'd be bold. Rush of blood, right? You've got to be discerning for your opportunities. That's what being sober-minded is all about. Paul says to Timothy, you'll need to endure suffering. Endure suffering. Jesus said it, that the apostles backed him up. The Christian life is one that is likely to be accompanied by suffering, by persecution, by tribulation. Think of a man like John Bunyan. What was John Bunyan's crime? Oh, he was a believer who preached the gospel of the Lord Jesus at a time in England's history when it was difficult and dangerous. To, it was just illegal to do it. He wasn't preaching in the established church. He was preaching in a little town called Bedford in what was known as the Bedford Assembly. And so he was warned and he wouldn't stop, so he was arrested and he was put in prison for 12 years. Endure suffering. Prison wasn't pleasant. There was no TV or swimming pool or gymnasium, right? But John Bunyan put up with it for 12 years and while he was there, he wrote a number of books, including that enduring classic uh, Pilgrim's Progress. Right? Endure suffering. Christians have regarded that as normal for centuries. But Paul says to Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. In other words, proclaim. Back in the day when Paul was writing, there were no newspapers, there was no TV or internet. To get news around, you had to have someone with a loud voice who'd yell out the the news of the day uh, in, in the town. And that would then be passed on. Do the work of a proclaimer, someone who announces news. Paul says to Timothy, fulfill your ministry. In other words, complete it. Don't leave it half done. Fulfill your ministry. Make sure that at the end, you've finished the work that you've been trusted with. So because people won't endure sound teaching, Timothy must endure suffering. That's how it goes. Walking in the light, that's what John calls it in his first letter, is going to be costly. It'll cost you too. Right? Uh, Staying true to Jesus may well put you at odds with family and friends. Might it? There's people here who know what I'm talking about. But do we accommodate what we say we believe about Jesus and betray him for the sake of pretending otherwise? No, that's not a good thing to do. We've got to be careful how we stick up for the truth, always gently and respectfully, but nonetheless... We don't give in because truth is truth. Walking in the light will be costly. So that's case study one. Case study two is Paul. Uh, In contrast, he's saying to Timothy, this is what you need to do. And I think he's using himself as an example of someone who's done it. So Paul is is able to say to Timothy, look, you know me. What I'm telling you to do, I've done. So use me as an example. Paul says to Timothy, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. Now, if you know the Old Testament, you'll know that for sin, something had to die and a sacrifice was made to show the sorrow and the the intention to turn from sin of the person who offered the sacrifice. Now, part of the sacrifice wasn't just an animal to be burnt, but there was a pouring out of wine. It was the least important part of the sacrifice, but it was necessary, had to be done. 
It was the least impressive part of the sacrifice, but without it, the sacrifice wasn't complete. Paul says, I'm like that. He said in Romans 12 uh, that each of us needs to present our body to God as a living sacrifice. Paul now says to to, to Timothy, I am being poured out. Now, this is a way of saying I'm about to die. Paul knows that he's writing his last letter. He, He knows that his time's short. I'm being poured out like a drink offering. He says, the time of my departure has come. The word he uses there is like a ship leaving port. He says, my ship is about to sail. Paul's execution was imminent. He was writing these words, using himself as an example of faithfulness to Timothy from a prison. We're not exactly sure where, but many scholars believe it might have been the Mamertine prison in Rome. If you went to Rome, you can still visit it. Um, that's what it looks like inside I've never been to Rome but, um, but, but lots of people go there it was small, it was dark it was a place that would have been crowded there would have been no sanitation the only food Paul would have received would have been from friends who thought well enough of him to bring it to him now just go back in 2 Timothy just turn back just a quick look at, at what this meant for him uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 16 Uh, Paul introducing this last of his letters in chapter 1 verse 16 he writes may the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus for he often refreshed me and was not afraid ashamed of my chains now that refreshment would have been feeding Onesiphorus would have taken him the food that enabled Paul to stay alive because the Roman um, authorities didn't feed the prisoners but it would have been a dangerous thing for Onesiphorus to visit Paul. He wasn't ashamed of my chains. Go down to chapter 2, verse 9. He says, I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. Right? That was the status that Paul had from which he was writing to Timothy. So does he know about suffering for the sake of the gospel? Yes, he does. Right? Has he accepted the implications of living faithfully for Jesus while he waits? Yes, he has. Right? He's chained like a criminal. What's his crime? Preaching the gospel. And so Paul goes on and he says, I've fought the good fight. He uses three metaphors here to describe the nature of his life. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Right? Fought the good fight. That doesn't mean he's used fists and and guns and things like that. I was talking to a young Christian the other day who described a friend of his from the old days who had fallen away from the faith and he said he needs a good belting I said no he doesn't (laughs) violence plays no part in the proclamation of the gospel it can't because Jesus is the prince of peace when Paul talks about that he's fought the fight what that means is it hasn't been easy he's using language that's taken from the games that they used to have where there was always wrestling and boxing and that's the kind of fight he's got. So he's, he's fought with the enemy within and the enemy without, but not physically, spiritually, he's talking about. He's finished the race. It's a marathon, not a sprint, and he's got the finish line in sight and he knows he's going to get there. He says, I've kept the faith. In other words, he has remained true to what he's learned about Jesus and he's not only remained true to what he's told others about it as well. He's kept the faith. He hasn't departed from it. Well, he's living out what Jesus told in Matthew 24 the one who endures to the end will be saved that's what Paul's describing 
at the end of his life, facing execution, he knows that he's endured with the help that God's given him. And so Paul's confidence is this. He says, Henceforth is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So Paul knows that Jesus is coming. Paul knows that he'll soon die. Uh, and he knows that there will come a day when his, his works are weighed and judged. But the Lord's a righteous judge, he says, and so he's confident that because he's seen the course through to the end, he'll be rewarded on that day. Well, the third case study is Demas. Uh, Now, look at those words there. If you're reading in the ESV, you'll have the, the version I'm using. If you're reading in the NIV, it will come out a tiny bit different. And there's a significant thing here. So this is what Paul says, henceforth laid up for me the crown of righteousness. It won't only go to Paul, it will go to all who have loved his appearing. Now have a look at that last clause there, all who have loved his appearing, right? A crown of righteousness. Does that sound like something that we want? Because that's the reward that Jesus has for all faithful followers, the crown of righteousness. And the qualification that Paul says here is all who have loved his appearing. Now look what he says about Demas in verse 9. Do your best to come to me soon, Timothy, I need you, for Demas in love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Now, unfortunately, it doesn't come out that strongly in the NIV. Um, NIV renders verse 8 to all who have longed for his appearing. right? But the word in Greek is identical. And so what that represents is that you've got a choice. You can either love the appearing of Jesus or love the world, but you can't do both. And so Demas quit on Paul because he was attracted more by the world and his affections went out to the world more than to the idea that Jesus was coming as the king and the judge. All who have loved his appearing, Demas, loves the world. And that's a deliberate wordplay in the original, which gives us something very strong to think about. Now, Demas was listed in Philemon and in Colossians as a fellow worker of Paul. So he had been an offsider. He'd been one who'd been with Paul in his work. He's named in two of the... Two of Paul's other letters, but now he's named as a deserter. He's gone from fellow worker to deserter. Now, to desert means to abandon or forsake, to give up on. Demas has not finished the race. He didn't endure. Now, we get to Mark, because he's named as well. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful to me for ministry. Now in Acts 13, if you remember back to when we were preaching on Acts earlier on, uh, John, whose other name was Mark, so when you read John here, that's actually the person we now know as Mark, he left Paul and Barnabas and returned to Jerusalem. We're not told why, but we do realise that Paul didn't think it was a good thing that he'd left them. And so Paul and Barnabas had a violent disagreement about whether to use Mark again, and they split up because of it. And we're told in Acts 15 that Mark had withdrawn from Paul, uh, which is a bit like deserting him. But now, 
Paul says, bring Mark with you because he's useful to me. Now this is wonderful. Living well while waiting for Jesus. We've got to use our talents. We've got to serve Jesus' family. Paul had fought the fight. He'd finished the race. He's kept the faith. No question he'll hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Demas had deserted Paul he didn't endure now whether that was as good as it got or whether he came back we don't know but Mark had withdrawn and been restored and this is one message that we need to keep remembering it is never too late to repent it's never too late to return to Jesus Jesus will forgive anything we've done so long as we repent so long as we return so long as we sincerely ask his forgiveness and turn away from what it was that drew us back We don't know if Demas did it. We do know that Mark did it. So we've got two examples there. Timothy, did he fulfil his ministry? Because that's the command that Paul gave. Did he fulfil his ministry? Well, in Hebrews 13, we don't know who wrote Hebrews, but we do know that he knew Timothy. He says, you should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. So Timothy uh, was prepared to suffer for the gospel because he was put in prison for it. So yes, Timothy did fulfil his ministry. We don't know about Demas, but we do know that Mark came back. So this is the choice we all face. There's two loves. The second coming, not for speculation, but for preparation. We need to live in the light of the fact that Jesus will return. There's a crown of righteousness to all who've loved his appearance, but Demas, in love with the present world, deserted Paul and deserted the gospel. So where's your love invested? In the present world? or in the world to come now that's a sober challenge and it's one that that comes home to us to us all every day where is your love where are your talents invested let's pray lord god we thank you for your word we thank you that it addresses our hearts in plain language uh, we thank you for servants like paul who took to heart the message of the lord jesus and lived what it meant right to the end. We thank you for these immortal words that he's penned to Timothy and for us. Uh, We thank you for the example of someone like Mark who, even though he fell away, was restored and and, uh, by your grace was enabled to to live out a, a fulfilling and faithful Christian life. We thank you for Timothy who was able to Uh, to live out what it meant even in the face of of persecution that put him in prison. We thank you for Paul, the very model of uh, the the, the Christian servant who will be rewarded with not only the crown of righteousness but those those beautiful words, uh, well done, good and faithful servant. Father, keep our hearts warm towards Jesus. Keep us warm uh, in our affections for the idea that he is coming again uh, to judge the living and the dead, to set up an eternal kingdom where he will reward the righteous. So please help us to be found among that number. Uh, We pray that you would help us to endure uh, until the end. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.